And this is um, <clears throat> one of only a few psalms. Uh, there's six of them in all of the psalms that were given the title of the victim of David. Um, and uh, this one particularly is uh, referred to as the, the golden psalm or the, the notable psalm. Uh, some people refer to it as David's jewel. And uh, we spent some time last week showing you in two different places. Once uh, in the book, early part of the book of Acts where Peter uh, refers to this particular psalm as being in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then later on in the book of Acts, we find that the Apostle Paul also reaffirmed the same thing, that what was being spoken of here in Psalm 16 was in direct reference to Jesus Christ himself. And uh, sometimes if we're not careful, uh, we'll read uh, something maybe out of its context. And uh, certainly there is a practical application that we can take from this. In fact, a lot of the things that you're going to read about here in Psalm 16, referring the Lord to the Lord Jesus Christ, are things that he, um, I want to be careful how I word this, these are things that Christ intentionally brought himself um, to the point of experiencing for the sole purpose of being an example to us. In other words, there's some things we're going to, in fact, we'll talk about one of them things, if we get that far today in the psalm, that, to be frank with you, I probably have heard somebody maybe mention it a time or two through the years, but it's not really something I've thought a whole lot about. And uh, it's something that I think is very important for us to understand and know uh, that even though God, uh, Jesus Christ was 100% God, he never stopped ceasing being God. He, the Bible does say that he took upon him the form of a servant, was made in likeness of a man, and he humbled himself. Uh, he laid aside his glory. It doesn't mean he quit being God, but he, he came in a humble spirit. He came as a lowly uh, human. He was born of a carpent, uh, into a carpenter's family. Uh, and he experienced the things that you and I experienced. You know, you realize today that, and we have this in our scriptures, it's very clear in scriptures, but do you realize today that Jesus Christ endured temptation? Um, and I want to I just mention this very quickly in passing. I'm not going to... I'm, not, I'm going to take a real short rabbit trail for a second on this issue and come right back to the lesson this morning. But I want you to understand something, that uh, there's a mistaken concept oftentimes that Satan is the equivalent opposite of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the equivalent opposite of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not true. Uh, Satan is a created being. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. He can only be one place at one time. He can't be everywhere like the Lord Jesus can. He doesn't know everything like the Lord Jesus does. And he is limited. And I think sometimes we get in our minds somehow that there are two almost equally powerful opposite opposing forces that are constantly at battle with each other. And the Bible tells us when, when, when God's ready for him to judge Satan, that it's not even going to be a battle. He's going to destroy him by the word of his mouth. And even though Satan's going to gather all the nations of the earth together to war against God, God's going to speak and the battle's going to be over. There's not even a comparison between them. And uh, I think it's important for us to understand this, that you and I, oftentimes, when we uh, come under, I would say, spiritual attacks or we feel like we're being overly tempted, 
we say, boy, Satan is really working hard on me. And I understand what we mean by that. But the truth of the matter is, more than likely, you and I have probably never been touched or influenced by Satan himself. But probably more from one of his, one of his devils, one of his demons, his followers. Because Satan can't be everywhere at all times. He's not like God where he's aware of everybody all at the same time. Satan has bigger fish to fry, I'll be real frank with you, than, than Greg Boer. And he, he probably deals with things. And I sell that to say this. It's important for us to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry was tempted not just by any devil, but by Satan himself. And he was able to overcome those things. We're going to look at some of those reasons, I think, why in Psalm it speaks of this. Uh, in this particular Psalm, we're going to look at some things that I think are wonderful examples to us uh, and really ought to be the things that you and I strive for in our Christian lives <clears throat> by way of following his example. And uh, we find in uh, verse number 1 uh, that he's, there's a prayer that, that is said here. Where he says, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. And again, you, I want you to keep in mind of this being the, the human part of the Lord Jesus Christ and being 100% human uh, and yet 100% God at the same time. He put himself, his human side of himself, he put those in trust to, to his Father. Uh, again, by way of example, he, he asked for him to be preserved. And in Job chapter 7, we saw last week that um, that, that God is a preserver of men. That's one of the things he does. And then we found in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 7 and 8, that speaking specifically of his Holy One, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would preserve him. And so we find that Isaiah spoke of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry as the Holy One of God, would be preserved by the Father. And so this prayer is not unusual. And, and sometimes we would say, well, why would the Lord Jesus, God the Son, pray to God the Father to preserve him? Uh, he is putting himself in the place of uh, human flesh to be tempted in all points like as we are. And he wanted to set the example of how you and I should deal with the same temptation. That we don't try to do it in our own might or our own power, but that we come to the Father and say, Lord, preserve me. I'm reminded of the disciples when they were coming across the Sea of Galilee. And uh, the storm rose. And Jesus was sleeping, if you remember, in the, in the hold of this ship. And the disciples went and woke him up. And what was their cry to him? Save us. We perish. And there are times we get into distress, we get into the, the, uh, the, the temptations of this world, we get um, the things of the weakness of the flesh, and our cry of our heart as a Christian ought to be, Lord, save me, I perish. I need you to preserve me. I need you to, to strengthen me through this. And I believe this is one of, the, one of the wonderful examples the Lord Jesus gives us as he humbles himself takes upon him the form of the man, is in all points tempted like as we are. He's touched by the feeling of our infirmities. He knows these, these emotions. He knows uh, the pain. He knows the sorrow. He knows, um, he knows the, uh, the, the effects. There's not, there's not one thing emotionally, there's not one thing by way of temptation that you and I can experience that the Lord Jesus Christ has not felt, and I would go so far as to say it this way, has not felt in its purest form. 
which is oftentimes way more than we've ever experienced. And yet he was without sin. And by way of example, his dependence on being pure and right and unspotted was placed in the Father. He says, preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. His dependence (coughs) was in God the Father. Secondly, verse number 2, the Bible says, O my soul, thou hast said unto my Lord, thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee, semicolon, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent, and, and to the excellent, and who is all my delight. And we made the statement this this last week, and I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. But if God had chosen not to redeem man, he would not have been any less God. He would not have been any less just or right or loving, or long-suffering, there was no no innate need. God didn't sit in His throne as a self-sufficient God. And by the way, God is all-sufficient in and of Himself. He needs nothing other than Himself for sufficiency. He didn't sit there and say, something's missing. In order to, to provide that which was missing in Him, that he felt like he had to provide redemption for me. He did not have to do it. Now, he obligated himself, and I think Brother Harold and I have had a lot of talks about some of this. He does obligate himself because he did make man. And as we find in verse number 4, he finds that there's an excellency in men, and there's something that delights his heart in him, and so he brings himself into that obligation of his own accord. But understand this, that what it's talking about here in verse number 2 is that there was, there was nothing that Jesus Christ did in the work of redemption that, that was the result of the fact that God needed to do this because there was something lacking that he needed to fill. The redemptive plan of God was solely for the benefit of mankind. Look what it says in verse number 4. Let's start in verse 3 again. But to the saints that are in the earth... I'm sorry, verse number 2 and verse number 3 is what I'm looking at. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee. In other words, Jesus is saying what I'm doing here, my redemptive work, is not something I'm doing for the Father. It's something I'm doing to benefit the saints. Verse number 3. But to the saints that are in the earth. And this is why he does it. And this is one of those questions I think I've I've discussed with people and I've not always known the answer to. I think the psalmist hits on it here. Why did he do it? Why did he do redemption's plan? Could he not have just wiped off Adam and Eve and started from scratch again? Could he not have just gone ahead and destroyed the earth then and started from scratch again? We could have. But I think we find at least some evidence as to what God's reasoning was for bringing redemption to the plan of man's sinfulness. In verse number 3 it says, And to the excellent in whom is all my delight. The fact that when man is redeemed, he becomes of great value to God. He becomes what the Bible refers to here as those that are excellent. He says, but to the saints that are in the earth. These are those that have been redeemed. Those have been uh, bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That there's an excellency to them. And such that it brings delight to the heart of God. And oftentimes we preach about the fact that we are not worthy 
There's nothing that we are owed. God did not have to provide redemption for us. And I've often quoted the passage of the psalmist when he says, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. And the idea being that, why did God do this? Did he have to? I mean, when I look at who I am, and I look at who he is, I don't grasp the understanding of why he would do this. And, and, and oftentimes we think, well, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And we are. We, we would be like any other Old Testament saint who would fall in the presence of Christ, not even be able to speak, would tremble in the presence of God because of our undone condition. And yet when we get saved, when we trust Christ as our Savior, the Bible says that God thinks of us as being excellent and someone that He delights in. The value that we are to God is what we are when we get saved, when we trust Him as our Savior. He goes on to say in verse number 4, and we, we kind of taught this stuff last week, so I'm not spending a lot of time on it this week. But verse number 4, he says, Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. And this is kind of where we ended last week with the idea that idolatry is one of the most heinous sins that there is in Scripture. Um, God hates, God detests idolatry. And he says, their sorrows, speaking of those that would have another God, their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their name unto my lips. Uh, I would say this about, about verse number four. Uh, the, the same God that throws his heart open to those that will trust him as their Savior, that he will look at and, and make them to a place of, by way of redemption, a place that he can say that they are excellent and I delight in them. As much as a God is able to do that, he also is the opposite of that to those who reject him. He closes the heart. He, he, he closes the acceptance of them. And he talks about the fact that their sorrows, notice what he says here, shall be multiplied. Those that will seek after another God. Jesus uh, hates certainly all, all wickedness. There's no doubt he hates all sin. He can't, he can't tolerate it. God can't tolerate sin. But I think, I think idolatry is one of those things that over and over and over again in Scripture he detests. He, he just can't stand it. But I want you to notice this, and, and I was reading a couple of different commentators on this particular psalm. And one of the fellows made this observation. I don't know that I'd ever seen this particular thought on this verse before. But he made this statement. He said, not only does it show us God's hatred towards sin. And by the way, we're living in a day where we ought to understand the hatred of God towards sin again. I was listening to a guy yesterday preach on the, uh, the sinfulness of sin and how, uh, how we, we so, uh, when, when we first, we, the first time we ever do a sin, it just eats at us. But the 500th time we do that sin, it doesn't seem to bother us. It loses its sinfulness over time. And, and he's, he's speaking on that saying, but he, this guy made this statement. He said, as much as, as, as uh, God hates uh, the, the wickedness and, and uh, uh, this, this idea of, um, of idolatry, 
um, it, he also is, I think, expressing in this verse um, how much these people uh, are greedy and pursue after this sinful condition. Notice what it says in verse 4. Their sorrow shall be multiplied that, what's the next word here? Hasten. Hasten after another God. Not only do we see God's hatred towards sin, but we see how much the sinner is greedy for more of it. He runs for it. He hastens for it. And I don't know about you, but at best in our lives, Christians, I think, even, even, even devout Christians, those that uh, have a desire for the things of the Lord, we are slow coming to God sometimes, are we not? Um, let me give you a for instance. Um, if somebody, it, it, let's say we get up in church this week and we say, starting next Monday, uh, we're going to have revival services for three weeks every night. We'll have them from 10 in the morning until noon. We'll break, come back at 6 at night, go to 7, 8 o'clock at night. There's going to be some people that are going to be like, that's exciting, but, but three weeks, four weeks of that? Isn't that a little much, Pastor? Or, or maybe we're excited until we get there. And we go through the first three or four days of it. Five days of it. And then all of a sudden one evening it's time to go. And, but we're just too tired tonight, you know, physically. We just, I don't know if I just really want to go or not tonight. And next thing you know, we, we can't. And I sell that to say this. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be uh, negative about this. But, but I'm trying to illustrate the point that even in Christians' lives, there's not that, that ardent fervor, that, that zeal to just everything about God. I'm, I'm 100%. I'm full throttle after it. We tend, to, we tend to put the cruise control on in the Christian life. And if Christians are slow towards the things of God, then it, then it certainly would be true that sinners, those that don't, that aren't saved, that, that don't have a desire for the things of God, hasten even more so after sin and ungodliness. I mean, if, the, if those that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them because of the, the fighting of our flesh still are slow towards the things of God, how much more are those that don't have the Holy Spirit in them? And so it says, Their sorrows shall be multiplied, that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer nor take up, uh, take up their names into my lips. Matthew Henry said this. He said, They that multiply gods multiply griefs to themselves. For whoever thinks one god too little will find two too many, and yet hundreds not enough. They that multiply gods multiply griefs to themselves. For whosoever thinks one god too little will find two too many, and yet hundreds not enough. These folks that are going to seek after other gods. I would say this, that we find in this particular psalm that Jesus sought no other God than the Father. There, there's no lacking in God the Father that the Lord Jesus Christ said, I'm not content in it. Because he's lacking in this area. 
I, I like Brother Oates a couple Wednesday nights ago. He preached on uh, Ephesians chapter 3, I think it was, where it said at the end of Paul's prayer, he was praying that you be filled with all the fullness of God. I've, I've thought of that phrase for two weeks. Being filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, to the place where He is my all in all. He's, he's everything. Where, where's the drive? Where's the zeal of God's people to be filled with all the fullness of God? Are there things that push out some of that 100% yieldedness to Him that we feel are more important to us? And are those idols in our lives? Whatever would push God out of our life, I would say, is an idol. Whatever would diminish Him in our lives, I would say, is an idol. The Bible teaches us in the New Testament that in all things he should have the preeminence. He should be the highest priority. In fact, he should be on a priority list that has nothing else on it other than himself. And and so we find that, that Jesus had no desire whatsoever to have anything other than the Father. You say, how do you know that? Because look at when Satan tempted him. Satan offered him. He took him up to the top of the the, the temple, if you'll remember. Showed him the kingdoms of the earth. And Satan said, I will give you all of this if you do what? You remember what he asked him to do? Bow down and what? Worship me. If in Jesus' eyes he was discontent, with the Father. He didn't have all the fullness of the Father in him. He might have been tempted to say, you know what, yeah, there are some things lacking. Yeah, I think I'll do that. But there was not even the temptation of Jesus to do that, was there? Why? Because God was enough. I think one of the great travesties of the day that we live in is that oftentimes... We go looking for things that we feel are lacking in our life. And all the while, they're right there in front of us. God is sufficient. You say, sufficient for what, Pastor? For everything. There need be no other. There need be nothing else. For He alone is sufficient. And when the Lord Jesus, by way of illustration, by way of exampleship, I believe, throughout His whole ministry, we see that there was not even a moment of deviation, of being under subjection, under the will of His Father, worshiping Him and Him alone. Sin and the Savior have no communion at all. In fact, the Bible says that about the Lord Jesus that in him was light and in, or in him is no darkness at all. There's no darkness in him. There is no fellowship with sin and darkness. Jesus did not come to this earth to uh to uh partner with. He didn't come to this earth to join in and become like the sinful world. He didn't come to kind of brush over the gloss over the the, the 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 evilness and the wickedness of sin. 
He came to have no communion with sin. He came to destroy sin. And so there's a place at, at which the Lord Jesus has no communion, no fellowship with the evil works of darkness of this world. In fact, there was a time where, if you'll remember in his earthly ministry, where even some devils came and said, this is the Son of God. You remember that? They were talking, saying, truly, this is the Son of God. And what did Jesus do? He turned and rebuked them. Not because they weren't telling the truth. They were telling the truth. But he didn't want to be identified as fellowshipping with the unfruitful works of darkness. He refused their testimony. He did not want to have any fellowship. He didn't even want their name to be named on their lips or his lips. If we're to enjoy unity with Christ, don't miss this. If we are to enjoy unity with Christ, we must break all the bonds of worldliness and keep ourselves pure from the pollutions of our carnal self. If we want to have unity with Christ, we must break the bonds of all worldliness. You say, well, Pastor, I've come a long way. I'm not as worldly as I used to be. That's not enough. It's not enough to be satisfied and say, well, I'm not what I used to be, so I'm okay where I'm at now. No, no. We are to be striving all the time to not have any worldliness. Never to get comfortable with it. Never to get to the place where we feel like I've reached a level that I'm okay with being here. I hope it's our cry of our heart. Lord, I want to be more holy tomorrow than I was today. I want to sin less tomorrow than I did today. I want to yield myself more to you tomorrow than I did today. Because he can't stand any of it. Not any of it. Why then should we grow comfortable with it? Why should it not be the pursuit of our hearts, the desire of our hearts? In verse 5 he says, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance, and of my cup thou maintainest my lot. He expresses confidence in the fact that uh, the Father is his portion. comes right on the heels of speaking about not having idols in your life. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you and I could say God is my portion? Years ago when I was learning sign language, one of the little courses they first taught us because it was simple to sign was the course, Christ is all I need. All I need. All. All I need. He was crucified. For me, He died. Christ is all I need. I've said it many times in preaching and I like to think that I live this or try to live this, and I would hope others would, that if we can get to the place where we recognize that God is all that we ever need, we can finally have peace in the Christian life where His full sufficiency is understood. But some reason we tend to think, maybe it's because of 
the influence this world has on our minds and our hearts, we oftentimes think there's something missing. I need something more. I know people that have left churches and gone out into the world and begun living like the world because they felt like there was just something missing. Well, not if we can put our eyes on the Lord and say He is my portion. He's my portion. Notice this. It says, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. Content beyond measure. In the Lord Jesus, there was not one single desire to have something other than God. His cup was full. Even in his sorrow, someone wrote, He laid hold with both hands upon his father, crying out, My God, my God. In his darkest moment, that's who he cried out to. Charles Spurgeon said this, and we'll end here for this week. He said, We too can make our boast in the Lord. He is the meat and the drink of our souls. He is our portion, supplying all our necessities and our cup yielding royal luxuries, our cup in this life and our inheritance in the life to come. As children of the Father who is in heaven, we inherit by virtue of our joint heirship with Jesus all the riches of the covenant of grace. The portion which falls to us sets upon our table the bread of heaven, and the new wine of the kingdom. Who would not be satisfied with such dainty diet? Our shallow cup of sorrow we may well drain with resignation since the deep cup of love stands side by side with it and will never be empty. How can I fear? How can I be in despair? How can I feel like I am lacking anything? When God is my portion, my portion, the reason oftentimes we run to find and fill the emptiness that we feel we have in our lives is not because we see that that will satisfy, but because we fail to see that God will satisfy it. It's not usually because we look at something and say, if I just did that, it would fix the problem. It's usually because we don't look to the Lord and say, He is my portion. Christ is all I need. He's all I need. No matter what comes my way, no matter what travesty of life happens, Christ is all I need. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. Father, we pray that You bless the Sunday school lesson. And Lord, certainly uh, one of the most important psalms probably we'll cover out of this particular book. Because, Father, the truth of the matter is we are living in a day where we fail